0: Welcome, everyone, to Healing Hope and Restoration. I'm your co-host, Tiffany.
1: And I'm Howard Love.
0: And Howard, we are, I think, on the third installment of our addiction series. We started talking about, you know, what is addiction? Mm-hmm. Um, you recently had the opportunity to sit down with one of our colleagues, um, Kevin Cisco, to talk about sexual addiction. Yes, And today we're going to talk about kind of the rise of alcohol use in our culture, especially as we're emerging from COVID. Now we know COVID hasn't completely pushed out, but we do know that statistically um, more people seem to have been drinking and it's not, um, you know, too crazy to think that because of that more people are going to develop a problem with alcohol if they haven't already.
1: Well, yes. And I think the thing that, um, really concerned me uh as I watched this emerge is that anyone who had a tendency at all, maybe just to drink casually, mm-hmm. now found themselves trying to um deal with something that was almost apocalypse like.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, think of everything being shut down in twenty twenty. You know, we had empty stadiums for sports events. Mm -hmm. Um, Restaurants are closed. Streets are empty. Uh, Delivery. The person puts it on your porch and leaves. Uh, You have no contact. That sense of isolation. And I remember we were out of church 13 weeks. Mm. You know, I did YouTube sermons from my office and so that sense of separation and isolation and Mm -hmm. where is this going in those initial days when everybody was uncertain Mm -hmm. and hospitals were full and you know, the world economy is grinding to a near halt. Um, travel is ceasing. I think it was in those moments that people working from home then and with all this isolation, and people who may have had tendencies at all to begin with may have been pushed to the brink. I know psychology today had an article about this in terms of some real time research indicating that alcoholism is indeed up Mm -hmm. due to many of those factors I just cited.
0: And when I think I would I would wonder how many of those individuals who it's now become their drinking has become very problematic were started off as social drinkers. And so when all of those places closed down that we would gather to, you know, have a drink or two, maybe a happy hour before going home now becomes that happy hour gets pushed to being at home. And now I'm drinking by myself and now
1: because yes. of
0: all of, because of maybe the COVID induced even depression or like the isolation that you just described. Now I'm probably drinking more than I ever have before because I'm not, you know, maybe policing it as much.
1: Yeah. And I think the danger is always when anyone starts drinking alone. Mm-hmm. Um, back in the day before I quit in uh, spring of 1977, I started ramping up my own intake, um, -hmm. alone. That was, that was starting to get scary because when you do that long enough, um, not only are you not very rational when you're drinking anyway and get to a point of being buzzed or drunk, but your mindset and your attitude can really take you down dark roads. Mm -hmm. Uh, especially if you're facing stress, if you're got challenges in front of you, if there's troublesome problems that haven't been solved, you can really make bad decisions when you're by yourself.
0: You absolutely can. And I, I remember having some friends, one individual I remember in particular who struggled with um, probably kind of multiple addictions, but alcohol was a primary substance. That was an issue. And it probably wasn't until he was at a social event and there were other people around him drinking. Alcohol was free flowing. And he had friends and family who looked at him and said, Hey, like this has become a problem for mm-hmm. you. And they said this with, you know, alcohol in their hands, like you need to slow your roll. Yeah. This is not good. And it was in that reflective moment that he was able to kind of take a step back, which was kind of amazing because he was intoxicated at the time. Um, but afterwards he walked away and really reflected and was able to get help and treatment after that.
1: Yeah. And you know, once you get in the throes of this, um, it, the, the problem really becomes the way in which you rationalize yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have a DUI. Mm-hmm. I don't hit my wife. I don't yell at my kids. I'm not gone all hours of the night. Um, what's the harm? You know I mean eventually you get to a space where your your rationalization doesn't make sense to anybody else, (laughs) but it makes a lot of sense to you. And, you know, that's a sign that this is a problem, Mm -hmm. you know, when you start to get to that point. And I think in today's world, um, we talked about this on another uh, podcast, is that um, people seem to be living on the edge. They seem to Mm -hmm. be living just short of expressing anger, Mm -hmm. like at any moment any small thing that happens, it it seems many people are ready to snap. Mm-hmm. And I think when you have that kind of uh, taught sort of conscience that's thin and it's tight, um, a plethora of problems can develop from it. And if you've been of the mindset of having a go to once in a while to unwind that now can become problematic over time Mm -hmm. and it can be slow. It most people aren't just going to roll out of bed this morning and say, I think I'll be an alcoholic and get drunk every day. Hmm. I mean, we don't plan on that. No, That's not something we initially start doing. Uh, it's usually more subtle over the, the course of time.
0: Yeah. I think something else that helps that, um, you know, that addiction or the problem take root is the fact that it's so interwoven into all aspects of our culture, especially And we've mentioned, you know, any sort of socializing as we were preparing for this podcast, I made the comment that I've, I've met many people over the years in different professions and I'm I guess, no longer somewhat amazed, but um, I think I was initially surprised at how much alcohol was interwoven into certain professions. And I don't say this to be stereotypical. I say this because I've had some individuals who have told me this, Um, you know, among lawyers and again, not trying to single any profession out. You know, I had a, a lawyer friend tell me that pretty much everywhere he went, every lawyer he knew had, you know, kind of a wet bar in their office. Like mm-hmm. it was always on hand, you know, mm-hmm. you know, after you perhaps finish a big case or settle something, you know, it's a drink, whether you go to the bar, or you do it in your office, um, even among healthcare professionals, you know, high stress jobs. A lot of times they're yeah. 12 on 12 off and those are long hours, long days, where your adrenaline is constantly pumping and then you have to go home and reacclimate to a calmer, peaceful life. You need something in between there to help you calm down. Doesn't necessarily have to be a substance per se, but quite often people find that the easiest. So before going home, there might be a mimosa in the morning if we get off at 7 a.m. before going home so that we can sleep. And so, and I know there are other professions, I saw it even in the teaching profession. You know, if you would, conferences were huge where, you know, you you'd go and you, you learn, hopefully you'd continue your education, but then there was always the party and there was always the happy hour and there was always the drinking that came with it as well. And I'm not saying people shouldn't socialize and I'm not saying that alcohol can't be a part of it in a healthy manner. I'm saying it's such an aspect of our culture that it's really easy to miss. I think when it becomes a problem.
1: Well, Case in point, um, we were out of town over the weekend Mm -hmm. and, um, we had turned the lights off and had gone to bed about 10 o'clock and a little past midnight, uh, four people came down the uh, hallway and went into the room right next to us and they were loud they were rude, they were obnoxious, and they obviously had been drinking. I could tell because I could hear them clearly. And it went on for about 20 minutes, and we called the desk, and they came up and confronted them. And the first thing, the guy that answered the door said, we're not bothering anybody. (laughs) You know, you could hear him way down the hallway. I mean, the guy didn't need a microphone. And the women who were with them were just yucking it up and laughing and loud. And we just couldn't sleep. So at about one o'clock, I went down to the desk in person. And I said, I don't know how you want to handle this. And I don't want to be difficult. But I am going to probably ask corporate for my money back if we don't get a change here because they haven't stopped. And, you know, I'm probably a little more less forgiving sometimes when I see that behavior because I know I was like that at one point. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you that. Okay. But at the same time, if you're paying more than 150 bucks for a room, Mm uh, you won't be able to sleep.
0: You want some peace (laughs) and
1: it's one in a morning now. And so I listened at the door and the lady did a fabulous job. She said, uh, look, Um, we've just gotten some more complaints. So here's what we're gonna do. We have some uh, empty rooms at the end of the hallway. Just give me a minute and we'll move you down into one of those, okay? And the guy said, sure, no problem. So that happened and I could gather by their conversation, they were highly educated professionals. Mm -hmm. So it isn't like they didn't have any social etiquette or understanding. Mm -hmm. And it, because the the walls are paper thin anyway, and actually this was a suite, so it could have been an adjoining room. Mm -hmm. In fact, at one point I heard one of them trying to come through the door that (laughs) came into our room. And, and so, you know, I, I, after witnessing that and thinking about it the next morning, I thought, well, I, I have some compassion. Um, yes, it was a little cranky because I didn't get all the sleep I wanted, but. I realized that, um, those that have a problem generally don't know they have a problem. Mm -hmm. And there's the socialization aspect of it, which I could gather by their conversation where they had been in a gathering. Mm -hmm. And so that reminded me of the TV show years ago, cheers, you Mm -hmm. know, most of us can hear that jingle in our head. Everybody (laughs) knows your name. Yeah. You want to go there? There's fellowship, right? There's connection. Everybody knows you you get all kinds of support there and blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, as much as uh, there were parts of that show that I found entertaining, I think the bottom line or philosophy of it is is sad because a lot of times you get more there than you do in the church. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, why wouldn't you go there? Mm-hmm. Again, not saying that's the right place to go, but think about connection. They know your name. It's socially accepted. This is what we do when we come here. We all like each other. This is harmless. We're just one big family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Wonder how that will work in the long run though.
0: So there's like secondary gains in there. Not only do I get to you know, drink, which probably helps me take the edge off and to calm down. But I get, you know, the camaraderie, like you said. I get the fellowship. I get to, you know, maybe vent and have conversations about all my frustrations, That's maybe right. things that are going on at home <laughs> I can spill here and everyone's gonna believe me because these are my people. So I'm probably not gonna be greatly challenged on my part yeah. in it.
1: Yes.
0: And everyone else is drinking too, so it's you know, it can kind of be the perfect place for fires to start. And, you know, it it makes me wonder, you know, we're talking about, you know, these situations as eventually becoming problematic, but it kind of begs the question at some point in time, you know, can I have a drink at home and it not become a problem? Can I regularly attend, you know, work sanctioned happy hours because I want to socialize. And if I don't go, then am I going to be seen as someone who's not social? Am I going to miss out on opportunities? Because that's where deals are being made and where people are being chosen Mm -hmm. to, you know, manage projects. So can I do this and maintain balance and it not be a problem?
1: Well, you know, obviously my bias is, (laughs) <laughs> no, you should not do that now for my clients over the years who have asked that question. Mm-hmm. It's a good question. Um, I, I've had a handful of clients who work for a very big worldwide company mm-hmm. and they were going to be in soirees and cocktail parties with, uh, high management, including the CEO and prospective business partners.
0: And you better go.
1: (laughs) And you better be there. And yes, and so one of the things that I've told them when they've asked the question, what do I do? Um, I said, do you really think that it would be rude um, just to say something like, you know, no, I choose not to drink. Thank you for offering, but I I would like that to drink if that's okay. Um, Would that be all right? And especially in one of these cases, high management knew the situation with this particular client. And, And so I asked him, I said, would they want you to after all you've been through? Well, of course not. I said, okay. Then why not just confidently put it in a positive twist? don't get into self-pity i can't mm-hmm. you know don't whine about it don't present it as a martyr complex or that you're a victim just confidently say thank you for offering but i choose not to i'll have this and later a couple of them said it went just fine no and, issue
0: and most of the time it that is the case Um, I know we characterize it, especially with teenagers often as a lot of peer pressure. Come on, come on, come on. And I'm not saying that's not a factor even for adults, but quite often you'll find that people will respect your decision even if it's, Oh, no, thank you. Like I'll just take a club soda and it's done. Exactly.
1: Exactly. I think most of it is, goes back to acceptance. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: We don't want to feel inadequate. We want to feel accepted. We want to be respected. And so I think the pressure of some of those situations leads us to, um, make decisions that are really contrary to our core beliefs or to what we're attempting to accomplish in our lives.
0: Yeah. And FOMO, that fear of missing out.
1: Yep. Absolutely. I
0: think is such a huge factor when I was going through my, um, Drug and alcohol training. I remember having a lot of conversations with my cohort about, you know, experiences with alcohol in particular. Um, several of them had been, you know, um, rec- in recovery and were work in recovery and now, you know, greatly reflecting on the process. And I remember um, one of my one one of my peers, um, who was absolutely fantastic. They were talking about how you know. When they came home um, and had, you know, housework to do and they had, you know, a few children in the household. I understand that experience with a three-year-old, a one-year-old and then and now one on the way and you've had kids all over you all day and they're still laundry staring at you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so in an effort to kind of come down and get through kind of the next phase, which seems never ending, um, she would have a glass of wine and so she'd sit down she said she'd fold laundry have a glass of wine and then she'd like mindlessly watch something and that was a way just kind of okay i'll still do things and i'll come mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. and so um that became a habit and it wasn't a purposeful habit just became like oh you know what i'll just this will be my routine and one day she um was doing it during the day as opposed to the evening. She was going to fold some laundry really quickly. So she sat on the couch in the same spot she typically did, started folding laundry. And she noticed that she had this urge for a glass of wine Mm -hmm. in the middle of the day. She was not a middle-of-the-day drinker. It was like one glass of wine in the evening at most then. And that was it. And she's like, hmm. I don't know what this is. All of a sudden, I have an urge to drink. She didn't. But later on, she was able to step back and kind of reflect on that. And I was like, what was that? Mm. And so I teach some of my clients, especially at home and even, you know, out and about that you know, we call it kind of classical conditioning from psychology that our brain loves to make associations, especially with substance use. So if you sit on a couch in a particular spot where you've always, you know, consumed and you're doing a particular activity and you make that a routine, when you engage in those activities, your brain is going to tell you that you should also be drinking alcohol too. yes. And so even if you don't have a strong desire at that moment, you may notice that those urges surface in ways that they didn't before because you have created a habit.
1: Oh, there's, that is so true. That can happen so subtly as well.
0: So coming home from work, you know, driving by the bar, stopping by that, you know, we call the watering hole, right? Mm -hmm. It could become a habit. Even if you aren't, haven't quite yet developed a problem, your body's telling you, oh, this is what you need to do. Even if you don't greatly have a strong desire at the moment to do that. And that's why I make people aware of, and I'll tell you this last story. I remember this being shared, um, by one of my professors as well, there's a man, and I might've shared this in a past podcast, so forgive me if this is redundant, who um, had worked really hard in his recovery. Um, Alcohol was a substance of choice and it was a problem. And he had missed every birthday that his child had ever had. And his child was turning 10 at this point in time. And one of his goals in recovery was to make it to his 10-year-old's birthday. And so he um, he did it. He made it. He wasn't widely accepted because there had been a lot of negatives that had accumulated. And so some of the adults looked at him with the side eye, but he was there and his kid was happy he was there. And so he kind of relegated himself to the refreshment table, like boring drinks for the kiddos running around all hopped up on sugar. And so they had cans. Um, of soda and so he was popping it open and pouring like partial so the kids didn't waste a whole lot of soda short version of that is he was popping open cans that psst, psst sound he started to notice that he had a strong urge to go drink and he'd had urges over the course of recovery but it hadn't been that intense Mm. and he felt very ashamed of himself because he's like i've worked hard to get here i'm at my kid's birthday this was my goal my kid is happy this is what i wanted why am i thinking about ruining it right now and getting in my car and driving to the bar i drove by on the way here like what is my problem he handled it well he ended up taking a break from the table he called a sponsor he talked about you know what was going on mm-hmm. and was pretty much kind of talked down from the ledge yeah. and um in his therapy later you know it was kind it was kind of taught to him like hey you know what your brain like what was going on so there were these triggers, these cues that were telling your brain, hey, this is what you should be doing right now. And our brain, we talked greatly, our brain doesn't forget much. No, and no. so he had to learn like, hey, there are going to be those moments where that, you know, that urgency is going to come up. It doesn't mean that you're back to where you started. It means that there's a whole lot of associations that have been made for you that are easily going to try and drive you back that direction. And you can resist. Um, but understanding that dynamic really helped him feel better about where he found himself.
1: Yeah. So as we, as we wrap this up, I think the, the thing that you just described there um is a model that I created called fluid memory. Mm -hmm. Um, Memory shapes meaning, meaning creates feelings and emotions, Mm -hmm. feelings and emotions create a behavior, Mm -hmm. the behavior perpetuates and then creates an intermediate belief and then a core belief. Well, if that model is allowed to go all the way through and circle back around, you have, falling off the wagon, you have, um, you know, addiction surfacing again. Mm -hmm. Um, So if we're gonna change that model, and he did that, you have to change it at the point of how you feel or emote about it. Mm -hmm. His feeling drove him to call the sponsor, talked him off the ledge, got his perspective, and realized that what he really felt was the peace of being here with this family celebrating my son's birthday and enjoying this moment Mm -hmm. without any guilt shame hiding um, you know remorse this is where i want to be and so all of us probably have something if it's not alcohol that fits into that model Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, you know because of how well our, our minds remember things and, and with recovering addicts, we use the phrase dopamine remembers, you mm-hmm. know, you dopamine's the feel good chemical of the brain. We want to feel good. Mm-hmm. So being able for him, being able to recognize, I feel shameful right now. This is not what I want to do, but this is a overpowering feeling I'm having. Yeah, nice. He was able to direct that feeling into a different behavior and then interrupt that model from being a negative model in his life, but now a positive model. So
0: instead of shame, driving him to drink, shave, shame drove him to go seek support. Absolutely. That's beautiful.
1: I like that. Yep. That's huge.
0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've presented kind of a a lot today over the course of this topic, you know, really talking about alcohol specifically and how it's interwoven into our culture and how alcohol use has become more problematic as we've been, you know, emerging from COVID and, you know, individuals who once may have been more social drinkers, you know, perhaps are finding themselves struggling with it becoming more of an addictive behavior for them. So if that is you and you're struggling, we strongly recommend that you seek professional help um, to really break that cycle in that chain that Howard described, um, because it can be broken and you can can. walk in freedom.
1: Absolutely. And, uh, as you think about walking in freedom, think about contacting an addiction specialist. Mm -hmm. Think about contacting your local AA group and see about attending meetings and, uh, just start to be proactive and take charge of your life.
0: Amen to that.
1: Well, folks, again, thank you for joining us. And as always, God bless and shalom.
0: The information contained in our podcast and on our social media pages is for informational purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room.